remember growing up in school, always did really well in math and science, but English, history, wasn't my favorite. And one of the main reasons for that was because I really despised writing papers. It was just the absolute worst. And I think as I, as I look back on that experience in, in, in hindsight, I think part of the reason I, I disliked that was because I struggled with perfectionism. And as a perfectionist writing a paper, some of you might uh, relate. It's like you stare at that screen and you like write a sentence and it's the absolute worst and so you delete it. And then you stare at that blank screen again, and then you write a sentence, and you hate it. And so you delete it again. You can just never, ever get to like a full paragraph and then a paper, because it's just... And so writing papers was just like pulling teeth for me. I just hated to do it. And I remember growing up, and um, well, I remember whenever I graduated, I, you know, I told myself, okay, and this is a real thought, okay, I'm not making this up. I actually said to myself, I'm choosing a major in college with no papers, and that's what I did. So I, uh, I started in nursing, and then I changed a couple times because I was one of those college students, and I just kept changing my major. But every time I changed my major, you better believe I checked first to see how many English classes were in the curriculum. And, um, and I always chose a major that didn't have any paper writing. Maybe a lab report, fine, but never a research paper. And then three years into college, God called me to seminary. And what do you do in seminary? You guessed it. You write papers all the time, every week, and it was terrible. Um, Worst part of seminary is writing papers. Um, And so I wrote a lot of papers, and I finally got, you know, also healed from perfectionism. So, you know, papers got a lot easier to write at that point. But, um, But one of the types of papers that we wrote often was papers about Scripture. So they were called exegesis papers. Um, And that's just a fancy word that you don't need to know, but basically talks about scripture. So, um, but like discovering the true meaning of scripture. And as we would write these papers, we were expected to do our research and to discover the four senses of scripture on any given passage. So some of you uh, might have heard of the four senses of scripture. Uh, some of you may not. And, and those that have been doing catechism in the year with Father Mike Schmitz, I just learned um, at, at a a couple masses ago, someone came up to me and told me that uh, he just covered this. So if you're doing that, uh, this is just a review. So I, what I thought today uh, I'd do is share with you the four senses of Scripture, because today is the Word of God Sunday. We're supposed to be talking about Scripture and the Bible and what a gift it is for us. And um, after I defined those four senses, I, was, I thought I would give you an example using today's gospel, and then maybe we can draw some uh, personal application from there. So the four senses of Scripture are as follows. First is literal, next allegorical, third moral, and fourth anagogical. So let's define that a little bit. The literal sense of Scripture is uh, what's written on the page, like what is literally being said within the context that it was written. Um, So, you know, all of Scripture is inspired by God, but God chose to use human authors at particular time and places to write specific books within the Bible. And every book is different. It has a different context and a different story. So um, the literal interpretation is what's actually being said within context. And that's really hard for us sometimes, a lot of times, because we like to... 
just kind of apply our own 21st century mindset from America onto the scriptures. But there's so much that needs to be said about the literal interpretation. So that's first. And the literal should inform all the other senses of Scripture because those are a little bit more spiritual. So the second sense of Scripture is the allegorical. You may think of the word allegory. But ultimately, it's what is the significance in Christ? We know that all of Scripture, like I said, is the Word of God. But the Word of God is more than simply words on a page. The Word of God is a person, the second person of the Trinity. The Word of God became flesh, John tells us, chapter 1, verse 14. And all of Scripture points to Christ. And sometimes, you know, the New Testament is pretty obvious because a lot of times they're talking about Christ or Christ is in the story. But in the Old Testament, too, it's always, always pointing to Christ somehow. There's always some type of significance in Christ, because all of Scripture is really one word, namely the Word of God, Jesus Christ. So that's the allegorical sense. The third is moral. That one usually is what, what we immediately go to. Moral um, is, is the um, instruction for action. It's basically the applicability to our own lives and the way that we should behave. And so, um, but, but, but keep in mind that the moral should flow from the literal, rather than us just subjectively applying our own standards and conscience upon what we think the Scriptures might mean. And then the fourth is the anagogical. Big fancy word that means eschatological. That didn't help either, because that's another big fancy word, that both of them mean um, the eternal significance. So basically the heavenly realities. What is this saying about heaven and about our ultimate destiny? Okay, so I'll give a little example using today's gospel. So in today's gospel, we have Jesus going to Galilee um, for the first time, and he is um, coming with a statement. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's begin with the literal. Because first of all, whenever you hear those words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, just imagine, put yourself in my shoes, and you're supposed to just give a homily, go. What are you going to say? Probably your mind immediately goes to the moral interpretation. Okay, repent. We gotta we gotta repent from sin. Fine, but we gotta start with the literal. So the literal context here is that the people in Galilee, when they would have heard Jesus say those words for the first time, they would have immediately thought of the restoration of the twelve tribes of Israel. Let me explain. In 1000 BC, in the Old Testament, we see God makes a promise to David, King David, and he says, King David, your kingdom will last forever. All right. Only problem is, whenever King Solomon dies in 922 BC, so not even 100 years later, the kingdom splits north and south, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. There's a division. It's not looking good for Solomon's everlasting kingdom. And then about 200 years later, 722 BC, the Assyrian exile takes place. The Assyrians take over the northern kingdom, and the ten tribes of the north scatter among the Gentiles. 
So this kingdom has fallen apart right before our eyes. Then, about 150 years later in 587 B.C., the southern tribes fall to the Babylonians, the Babylonian exile. So now all of the tribes are in exile. About 50 years later, um, five-something, 50 years later, (laughs) do the math, (laughs) can't remember, Um, 538 B.C., it's not exactly 50, I remember now, Um, Babylonian exile ends. So, okay, two tribes are restored, but it's not much of a kingdom. I mean, there's still 10 tribes in the north that are still scattered, and that's 538 B.C., and for the next 500 years, everything remains the same. So Jesus comes onto the scene, and that's still the situation. People are desiring this everlasting kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel that God promised to King David, and it's not happening. And Jesus shows up in Galilee and says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. You see, now they're excited because this restoration is going to begin. And even more fun facts here, um, what were the first two tribes to fall to the Assyrians, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, how many of you, whenever you heard those words today, in today's gospel, just thought, oh, that's some big old Jewish words. We'll just keep reading. Right, because it doesn't mean anything to us Americans in the 21st century. But again, literal context here. Zebulun and Naphtali were the first two tribes to fall to the Assyrians. Jesus goes to where those tribes were, namely Galilee, to make his announcement that the restoration of these 12 tribes is about to begin. Suddenly, the literal meaning of this passage has so much depth to it. All right, from there flows the next three senses. Allegorical, what does this mean about Christ? Well, we know that Christ is the king, king of the universe, king of the church, king of heaven. We also know that, in a sense, Christ is the kingdom. Like, like the kingdom of God is the presence of God concrete in time and space, in history. And Jesus Christ is God. And so, in a real sense, Pope Benedict really draws this out in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, that, that even to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim God, is to proclaim the kingdom. And so, the kingdom, in a way, is Jesus himself. But also we can say that the mystical body of Christ is the church, and the church on earth is the kingdom in the world. So there's all kinds of a can of worms that have just opened for the allegorical sense. There's all kinds of significance in Christ. What's the moral sense? Well, of course, repent. Repent from your sins, fine. That's obvious and true. But also, the kingdom of God is is God's saving action in the world, his redeeming process that he began since the fall all the way to Christ and continues today. The moral sense is that we should be a part of this kingdom which brings restoration from sin. Jesus is inviting us to make a change and to be a part of this kingdom. All of that has moral significance in a new rabbit hole that we can run in. And then the fourth is anagogical or eschatological, the eternal significance of the kingdom of heaven uh, is heaven. 
That's uh, a little bit easy to see in today's passage. Yes, not only um, do we like experience the kingdom now, but eventually there's like the totality of the kingdom after we die. So that's just one example of how Scripture is rich with meaning. It's, there's so much to it. And how relieving it is that we don't have to immediately know all of that the first time we read the words on the page. Because we believe in sacred tradition. In other words, centuries of really holy and smart Christians have wrestled with all of this. And so everything I told you today, I didn't make up. I didn't just know whenever I read it. I was confused like you. But fortunately, there's thousands of years of really smart and holy people that, that have like put all this on a silver platter for me. All I did was find it and give it to you. And nowadays, we live in a, in a world where all those resources are readily available through apps and internet and books and all that. So thank God that we have a beautiful church that has preserved the rich interpretation of these scriptures. Because a lot of times we feel like, oh, the only interpretation is my own personal feelings about what I just read. Whenever we discover the four senses of Scripture, that then springboards us to have a more rich prayer with the Scriptures. Now we can encounter the true and living God personally, face to face. And as we encounter Jesus in these Scriptures, then it becomes more personal and relevant to our own lives. Now we can pray with it. Now we can learn something from it. Now we can grow in our faith and in our love for Jesus. But it's okay if it's hard. Be not discouraged. There's help to help us um, grow in our relationship with the Scriptures. So um, today I just want to invite you uh, just to consider, I mean, how much time... How much time are you spending with the Scriptures? How much time are you spending with the Bible? How much time are you spending with the Word of God? Do you pray with it? Do you study it? Do you read it? Do you share it? Do you talk about it? Do you, um, do you follow biblical people on social media? How much time are you spending with the Scriptures? I believe we could all spend more time with it because the scriptures are alive. It's the divine word of God. It's not just mute, old, historic, written words on a page. So much more than that. There's always more because the word of God is a person. That person is alive. And just as you spend time with living people and continue to get to know them in time, it's the same with the word of God. As we spend more time with Scripture, there is more and more depth and meaning that is revealed to us. It's infinite because God is infinite. There's always, always more. So I just want to encourage you today to consider um, spending more time with Scripture. Whatever that means for you, there's so many ways that that could happen. And so get creative but if, you, if you're not creative and you, need, you just want me to tell you, okay, how to do it, well, um, one suggestion that I'd like to start with is use the Hallow app. We've been talking about that for, for weeks. It's in the uh, bulletin for more information, but there's all kinds of ways through that app that can help you discover a deeper relationship with Scripture.
And as you do, you encounter the living Word of God who loves you, who wants to heal you, who wants to restore you and love you back to life. Amen. Amen.